I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Casey Welch, President and CEO of Tallow. Tallow, one of the nation's largest online platforms for connecting talent with career guidance and opportunities, has a new name, and expanded career readiness resources for students and professionals looking to seize control of their futures. As we grow to help hundreds of thousands of young, talented users showcase their skills and get discovered by colleges and companies, we realize that it was time for a change, says Casey Welch. Our users have such a wide spectrum of skills, passions, and interests in STEM fields and beyond. Tallow from Talent and Opportunity is a name that better reflects our mission to connect everyone with opportunities everywhere. Welcome to the show, Casey. Nice to have you here. Pleasure to be here, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Well, uh, Tallow, you've, cha- you've changed your name. Uh, have you changed your mission? Uh, I, I think I described your mission, but let's talk about that. I mean, how do you connect all of these, to connect everyone with opportunities everywhere? That's a huge mission. <laughs> how do you do it, and how do you do it through <laughs> Tallow? <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's a great question, uh, Catherine. I, I think that's the, the one thing that's been tried and true throughout, you know, uh, starting this, uh, about six years ago, um, you know, Tallow, or at the time STEM Premier, was was really created to um, equalize the playing field um, for all. You know, really democratize the process and that ability of um, being able to connect opportunities for talent, no matter where it was located. And you know, even though our name changed, uh, the mission truly did stay the same. Uh, I think Catherine, one of the big things that you know, when we founded this, you know, I was one of the founders. We also had, um, you know, another gentleman, which was a, uh, a past uh, superintendent with over 26 years of experience, multiple Blue Ribbon schools, and had another founder that was from the corporate world. And when we brought all three together and said, you know, how do we help, how do we impact students, not just in a school, in a district, how do we help address this on a national scale and address it from the education and the workforce side together into one? And that's really what we set out is, you know, our tagline used to be, don't go unseen. Um, that still mission is still tr- tried and true with our platform uh, today. And um, it, is a tall, it is a tall order. But, you know, we're, we're taking it down student by student uh, across the country. So let's hold our hands and tell us exactly how you do it. Um, because you describe it as a, a really a center of a vast career readiness networking. You link the students specifically, like you, you just said, you link them to colleges, technical schools, and employers. And so how do you do that? You know, where do you step in or when do you step in? Yeah, well, I, I, think, I think the last part of what you said, Catherine, it is really important. And, and the answer is when do you step in? And it's as early as we can. Um, you know, from our platform right now, we start with students as early as 13 years of age, um, so kind of middle school level, um, to provide them a way to showcase themselves. And I think a lot of what we do when we approach this was really to a- answer a, a couple major questions which guided us. And one of the biggest things that a lot of us have been through, whether, whether it was when you were a student, whether it was you as a parent, um, is, is really the unfair question that's always asked and it's asked earlier and earlier of these students of what career do you want to do? And, you know, what is that career that you want to do? And, you know, we make them make a decision really early on. And it's, if you think about it, that's a, that's usually a pretty stressful conversation. 
um, again, being on both sides, whether you're a parent or a student, you know, that's a big decision we're asking these students to make early on. And, you know, what we realized is a lot of them, right, just like many of us, me included, um, we don't know what we don't know. And, you know, what we wanted to do was say, you know, how do we provide an experience, um, you know, through tallow where it can be, you know, it doesn't have to be as stressful. Is it, a, is it an important decision? Yes. But is it the end of the world? The answer is no. Um, I think I, I saw a stat the other day around 80% of, of college students change their major within the first two years. Um, so, you know, I was going to be an orthodontist. Uh, Catherine, I'm definitely not an orthodontist now. Um, we change our path. And, um, you know, that, that evolves with technology and the way that we're doing it. So one of the biggest things we said was, how do we create a way where a kid or a student um, can showcase what their talents are? You know, what are those talents? And then how do we help them better showcase what they are? Some students, it may be academics. Some students, it might be a technical skill or ability. Um, some, it might be their ability to talk and, you know, communication skills. So we wanted to create an easy way that they were used to using where they could showcase everything that they do um, and also provide another way where, again, companies and colleges could, could find this talent based on it and connect with it earlier so that they could help foster and facilitate that throughout the conversation. And so that was really one of the big things, you know, Catherine, is how do you create an environment where it's okay not to know? Or if you do know, it's okay to share that. And also, let's make you aware of different opportunities that are out there. Well, I'm thinking and about middle school. Well, I'm thinking about middle school. I mean, I, I sort of get it when I hear I'm listening to and I'm thinking high school. Yes. Uh, middle school, 12, 13, 14 years old. Uh, approximately. Anyway, that's the age level. So you go into a middle school. And you will, and you're saying you want to level the playing field so that all the kids have an opportunity because some people, some kids have more opportunities to showcase their talents because of maybe their parents or socioeconomic background or for a lot of reasons. So what you're saying is you go in and you're assessing all the students, right? No matter what track they're in, what curriculum they're in, um, and allow them to, I guess, you know, be able to express themselves and then what you evaluate them. How I'm really curious is especially how you do it with at such a young age, say because 12 is middle school, right? So you know, again, right at that age, you know, so to be, um, you know, to be to the rules and regulations, we start at age 13. So you know, right at that later age, but really, what it comes, I mean, if you think about, uh, we always use a lot of analogies to the world of sports, Catherine. Right? If you look at, you know, college coaches, etc., you know, they don't wait till the talents a senior year in high school, right? They, they find it, you know, if I'm an eighth grader, whether he or she is an eighth grader that's, you know, six foot ten and plays basketball, right? Every college coach in the country knows where he or she is. Um, there's platforms to be seen. And, you know, everybody has a talent and ability. And, you know, our major goal is not to tell them, you know, every, every student needs to go to college. Our goal is to say, you know, what do you want to do, right? Let's help you understand the opportunities that you have and the pathways you could go to achieve that. So whether it's a go to a four-year college, that's great. Maybe it's a two-year. Perfect. Maybe it's military. That's an option too. Maybe it's directly into the workforce. We like to make sure that they're aware of all of those and that some of the work that these students are doing earlier on 
the earlier they can understand that path, you know, then they can say, well, hey, maybe, maybe you know, I'm a musician. Let me make, make that analogy, uh, Catherine. There's a high correlation between musicians and computer science. There's a lot of math. So now we can look at a student that says, hey, what are you, what are you interested in? Right? That's the question that is usually asked when people say, I don't know what I want to be. What's the next logical question? What are you interested in? And then we start to walk them through that process. They can also share some of the things that they're involved with. Maybe they're in, you know, Girl Scouts. Maybe they're in Boy Scouts. Maybe they're part of FIRST Robotics. Maybe they're part of these different associations. Maybe they're part of a church group, whatever that might be. Those are all things that help, help us better to understand and help employers to understand wow, you know, maybe we have a summer camp, maybe we have a program. How can we connect with them earlier and just gauge them interest? Because if you engage them, Catherine, early on, you know, they're going to be more, uh, you know, receptive to saying, wow, I never knew about that. I never thought about that. Do you think that I could be a good fit for that opportunity? Right? You know, that's what sports does such a great job of, that we wanted to translate transition into the academic and technical sector. That's very exciting work now as you're explaining it in detail. And I think the example, as you say, you don't wait till you're a senior in high school and decide, hey, I want to play football for the NFL. No. Uh, and it's the same with and music, too. Kids display those talents very early on. So you're sort of taking, well, okay, music. Uh, there, I mean, there are so many talents. How do you... When you go into a school, uh, how do, do you engage the parents? Is that part of it, or, or, or what do you do? I mean, how do you evaluate the students? And you talk about they can showcase their talents through digital profiles. How do you do that, for instance, mm-hmm. um, and, and get specific guidance and coaching, for, I guess, with, from within the school? Yeah, yeah. Uh, great question, Catherine. And one of the big things and the great part about it is that we realized if we, if we really wanted to level the playing field, you know, we can't go into every school. Um, so we had to provide a means in a way that the students are used to communicating. So how do you, you know, and this is the challenge we said, how do you create a way, right, where we can put them in an environment that they're used to using, so kind of like a social media environment, but not be in the sense of another Facebook, Instagram, et cetera, you know, or, you know, even a LinkedIn. Um, how do we put them in a safe, secure environment where they can showcase what they're doing and, and do it in a way that they're used to um, displaying themselves? And so that's why, you know, we created the, um, you know, the platform of the app where these students can literally go in from anywhere in the country at any time, um, you know, sign up for Tallow. It's free. Go in there walks them through a welcome flow process of some important information to put in and then starts to build, you know, recommendations for them. Starts to help them to show um, what it is important that they, that, they, that they show. Because one of the biggest things that we saw is that when we go into um, schools, right, we did it when going into them and then saying, how do we do this in a virtual environment where we don't even have to be there, where they could be your son or daughter that comes back from a, you know, basketball practice tonight, and you say, hey, here's a platform you can go. It's safe and secure. You understand how to use this um, because it, it, it mirrors a lot of the other social platforms, but in a safe, secure environment, you know, where students aren't talking to other students. But allow them to understand that a lot of the work that they're doing, so often, um, Catherine, we look at it, and people say, well, what experience do you have? 
And it's always associated with just work experience. And sometimes they don't know that it's relevant. And I'll use an example. We'll go into a classroom and say, how many of you, you know, have any work experience? You know, and, and, I, and I did this in a school um, recently. And no student raised their hand. And they were all juniors in high school, let's say. And I said, come on, somebody has to have something. And one kid raised his hand and he said, hey, I'm a cashier at Zaxby's, and, uh, which is a restaurant chain down here. And everybody laughed at the student. And, you know, I kind of stopped the class and I said, you know, what, what's so funny? And they're like, that's not relevant. He's a cashier at Zaxby's. And I'm like, and, you know, we stopped them. We said, look, if I'm an employer around college and I see, hey, this student is maintaining good grades, they're also working. They're understanding the importance of, uh, you, know, you know, handling money within a company so they're trustworthy. Um, that's going to put them above, uh, you know, anybody else up the chain. Once you said that, right, once we said that in the classroom, then the hand started to go up. Well, hey, I'm a lifeguard. Hey, I babysit. Well, if somebody's going to trust you with one of their most prized possessions, which is their children, you know, that says something to me as an employer or as a college about that person. So then they started to say, wow, a lot of the work that I am doing, I should start to showcase. You know, me showing that I'm part of after-school events, activities, now it becomes more. It tells me more about the story. It tells me more about the person. And then they start to share it because they understand why and that it is important, if that makes sense. Yeah, so you're helping them to connect the dots, and you're helping them to do that early on. I mean, those are great examples. I mean, I have an example. I'm one of those parents, I think, who understood that that's what you needed to do. But I have a son who's a filmmaker, has an MFA in film. But it wasn't until it was junior year in high school that, and he's looking for colleges, and this is quite a while ago, uh, and we're looking to see where he can you know, where his talents, you know, will, you know, will be fostered. And he, I discovered that uh, Tufts University and this Boston Museum School of Fine Arts, because he was a wonderful artist, had a dual degree program. But what I'm saying is, we could, I could have, using your platform, I could have found that out in middle school, not waited till junior year or after his PSATs, I guess is what I'm saying. And that's just one example. But all this is out there, and you're and it's great, and you're connecting them to all of these opportunities, I said, and be able to assess their own talents. But um, that would have been an example of a missed opportunity if, as a parent, I wasn't able to help him make those kinds of connections. That's all. I, I think that's what you're talking about. Well, I think that's exactly it, Catherine. You know, I, you know, I came from, um, I came from a small rural town in Pennsylvania, you know, an old steel town, um, you know, up there in the Northeast where I went to the same school as my parents. They graduated with 400. I graduated with 82 a number of years later. Um, manufacturing moved out. There wasn't a lot of opportunity. Um, I could kick a football far, you know, so I got seen and, you know, I eventually, uh, you know, was able to play at the, at the collegiate level. And it really started my career. Um, there were a lot of other friends that had skills and abilities that were in that town. Uh, they weren't on the football field. They weren't on the basketball court. They were in the classroom. They were in the, uh, you know, the CTE classrooms, the shop. And unfortunately, they're still in that town doing something that they don't love to do um, because nobody ever saw them. They never knew that they had those opportunities, and they knew what went on about a 15-mile radius around where they were at. You know, I was 
40 miles from, you know, one of the best computer science institutions in the world. Um, you know, I came from a good family. I had a lot of opportunities, but I didn't even know that. And like you said, that's really what Tallow wants to be about is how do we make you aware, no matter where you're located, no matter if you're in the best school in the country, the most underserved school in the country, we put you on a level playing field and we can say, here are the opportunities. Whether you decide to take it, that's up to you. But you need to be aware, just like you talked about your son. Hey, if you can make them aware of it earlier, gauge their interest, you have a higher chance of connecting them into something that, you know, it's, you know they could make a great living at, but it's also something that they're passionate about. And when you can drive them into something they're passionate about, they're going to be happier. They're going to like to do it. Um, they're going to share more and get more vested into it, um, which helps the retention and all those different areas. Now, let's see. Uh, what about your relation? We've kind of touched on, obviously, your relationship with the, the children and the parents. But what about your relationship, let's say, with the counselors, the school counselors and uh, how do the, and the guidance yeah. counselors? And how do they fit into it once you've exposed the, 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 uh, the students uh, to Tallow? Mm-hmm. What about the administration and the faculty? How do they fit into this? Yeah, yeah that, that's, that's, a, that's a great question, Catherine. And so, you know, when we bring on, um, you know, there's, there's key stakeholders in students' lives, right? You mentioned about parents. You mentioned about teachers, guidance counselors, mentors, etc. And they're all a key role, right, in helping the success of the talent. You know, so what's great about what we wanted to do is there's an avenue which is, hey, you know, maybe you don't have, you're not fortunate to have that teacher or that school support it, right? You can go on to Tallow wherever you're at, whether your school does it or not. Um, you own it, right? Not, we roll out in schools, but it is all student-driven. That's the whole platform. You know, they're in control of it. So they can get on at any time. For those schools and districts that we do work with, what's great about it is, you know, those students are doing a lot of great work. The problem lends itself to they're doing a lot of great work. Who knows that they're doing a lot of great work, their students? You know, maybe the teachers know, maybe their parents. But how do we let the country, the world know what they're doing? And so when you think about the role of the guidance counselor, right, they have a, they have a very tall order that they have to address, right? They're dealing with social issues. They're dealing with much more than you know, career guidance in a lot of cases. They're dealing with things that technology can't solve. Um, We actually, you know, counselors are one of our biggest advocates because if you think about it a lot of times, right, students get to meet with their counselors once, maybe twice a year. They sit down. The first thing they do is they pull out that, their transcript, right? And they look at their grades and they ask the student, hey, what what do you want to, what do you want to do? Where do you want to go, right? And then they help guide them and say, hey, look, if you want to go this path, here's a great school. Here's some things to think about. What, the way that we're actually working with a lot of guidance counselors now is they see this as something that is very complementary to what they're doing. So now when they sit down and have that conversation with, you know, Joanne, they can say, hey, Joanne, you know, I see these are your grades, but I also see on your Tallow profile that you show that you might be interested in a medical field, but you might also be interested in computer science or maybe, you know, a communications degree. So let's talk about that. I didn't know that you did that. And then they can have a more meaningful conversation. They can help, you know, take advantage of that time and help provide guidance that, oh, now that I see that, see that you want to go there, you know what? 
here's the scores that you need to get, or here's the school, or here's some other ones to consider. So they, they can take advantage of that time and, again, use it to complement themselves um, and maybe identify things about a student that they had no clue of. Um, but, you know, just because they were in that course or that track that they were put on, that doesn't mean that's what they want to do. These students can really show what they're really passionate about. So you are providing a wealth of information for the guidance counselors and taking a load off their back, literally. I mean, and they're able to do a much better job, as you say, instead of sitting down once or twice a year just saying to the kid, well, you know, here are your grades. What do you want to do? Because that doesn't really involve the whole picture of the talents of the kids. What about now employers? Because you say, because you deal, you have, you work with employers who are partnered, I guess, with several um, hundred companies and colleges. How does that work? Yeah. So, um, you know, as you mentioned, you know, we work with, you know, big colleges, small colleges, community colleges, all different paths. But the great part is, you know, they're looking to find the talent. And one of the biggest things that you know, we did from the student side is if you think about it, often when you're, when, you know, your child, they go through the process, they are always pushing themselves out to universities if they want to go the college route, right? They're always sharing their information out that way. What's great is what we're doing is flipping the script a little bit. And we're saying, listen, you're going to push out, but what if they came to you, right? You as a student, based on your skills and talents and abilities, there were better matches where they could reach out to you. Maybe they have scholarship dollars. Maybe they make you aware of a program that you didn't know that has a great placement rate. So we help bring them, bring the, uh, you know, colleges and companies directly, directly to the students. And so, you know, we, again, we work with large universities, again, you know, from coast to coast, from the Penn State to the Clemsons of the world, different ones like that, to the community colleges. We also work with the employers. So from, you know, you know, Boeing to BMW to Blackbaud, um, you know, other companies like that that are looking to directly connect with the talent. Um, the biggest challenge that they have, Catherine, is they can't be everywhere, right? They'll, you know, they have commitments where they will go to schools to recruit, right? Or they have camps where they hope you come by. Or they set up at career fairs and college fairs. And if you've been through that, you are taking the chance of hoping that a student walks by that happens to be the perfect fit for you, that turns around and has a conversation with you, and you can make it, you know, work. What we try and do is say, that's one strategy. So what if we could tell you and you say, hey, I'm really looking to increase, you know, diversity in my programs. We have a lot of great opportunities for females interested in going into these fields. We have scholarships. We have internships. How can we get that message out on a national scale, but directly target to them um, and get that message to them so that maybe they are in an underserved school. Maybe they're in, you know, you know, Maine, an area that's not highly populated where it doesn't make sense for them to go travel and be there. Now they can sit wherever they're at and say, show me all the students interested in these fields that meet this criteria. Let me look at their profiles send them a message directly. It's going to come up on their phone and say, hey, you know, Boeing just sent you a message. They're interested in their internship opportunity. Or Cummins just sent you a message. Or I'm a college and hey, we have a great opportunity. We think you'd be a great fit. We'd love to connect with you and then directly drive them into their, you know, talent acquisition or their college streams. Um, That's what we provide them to. 
you know, a different way where they can really make that personal connection so that it's a better match. It's a, highly, it's a higher likelihood that student's going to want to stay at their school or stay with their company and make that match earlier on. And that's how we work a lot with the colleges and companies, Catherine. We really level that playing field for them. So now it doesn't matter what school or it doesn't matter if they don't come. You know, they didn't they weren't coming to my school, a Ford City High School with 82 kids in rural Pennsylvania to recruit. Now, colleges for football did. But, you know, you know, sports are great. But that lasts a little part in time. Careers, companies last forever. Now we provide them that ability and it becomes a win-win on both sides. The student gets a great opportunity. They're passionate in doing and they want to work for it. Companies get a great employee that, it, that they're passionate about them that hopefully they can help sustain them and grow their careers all at the same time. Well, as I'm listening to you talk, college fairs sound antiquated. They almost sound 19th century when you're kind of <laughs> comparing a college fair with, what, with the work that you're doing. I mean, you miss so many. In, 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 when you describe it, it's just I'm thinking, oh, my God, all the missed opportunities, both for the colleges, for the employers, for the kids. I mean, um, this is a, I'm not the only one, as I'm listening to you, think it's a great idea because talk about numbers. We have about three minutes left. So you really, in 2018, you have connected quite a few students to colleges uh, and uh, connected with high schools in 50 states. And yeah, give us some of those numbers before we have to say goodbye. And then also a website that we can go to yeah. to get more information about Tallow and you and what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely, Catherine. So, you know, real quick, you know, we started to bring on a majority of our students, um, you know, here over the past three years. We now have uh, students uh, using our platform, um, over 430,000 across the country, all 50 states, over 20,000 different high schools, you know, 3,000 different colleges that students are being represented from, over 300 colleges and companies, you know, from big and small using it. And it's something that they can take with them, Catherine. So when they graduate from high school, it doesn't stop. They can take it with them, whether they go to a four-year, a two-year, the military or the workforce. It's their whole record. And showcase everything that you're doing. Do not forget about what you've done in high school, even though you're in college, because employers do care. They care about more than just test scores and grades. Um, it's free for, for students to go on, so there's no paywall. They don't have to wait for their school. They can get on it today. They just go to tallow.com, T-A-L-L-O.com to get started. Employers and colleges, they can connect, connect, reach out to us in the same way and um, bring them all together. And really appreciate the time, Catherine. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show. Casey Welch, President and CEO of Tallow. Have a great day. Take care. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. 
Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for you with Arvind Vora, Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is author and Harvard University professor John Dowling, Ph.D. Uh, his new book is Vision, How It Works and What Can Go Wrong. Over the past 50 years, enormous progress has been made in understanding visual mechanisms and treating eye disorders. And yet the scientist is not always aware of the latest clinical advances, and the clinician is often not up to date on the basic scientific discoveries. John E. Dowling, a neuroscience research professor at Harvard, examines vision from both perspectives, providing concise descriptions of basic visual mechanisms and related clinical abnormalities. He discusses what could potentially go wrong within our complex visual system, surveys the evolution of our knowledge of vision, and speculates about future advances. He has received numerous awards for his research and has been featured in dozens of medical publications. He's a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, a member of the National Academy of Sciences, and a member of the American Philosophical Society. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here today, John. I'm delighted to be with you. Well, the first thing I thought about when uh, I read the title of your book, Vision and How It Works and What goes wrong, what Can Go Wrong, is, uh, and you're the neuroscientist, and I think you wrote this book with your brother, who's an ophthalmologist. Uh, That's right. The, I, the aging population just came to mind. Um, you probably have a whole group of people on a daily basis who really have need and uh, should uh, should read your book, but um, ha- need, need access to information about our vision that we can understand, first of all, that's not too academic or not too research-oriented. So I guess my first question is, can we understand your book as lay people? Is this book for us? 
Yes, it is. It's designed really for three audiences, including the lay audience. Uh, we all, as we age, have visual problems. The most common one, of course, is what we call presbyopia. Presbyopia, that's farsightedness. As we get older, our lens, which focuses the image that we're looking at on the back of the eye, gets somewhat stiffer. And so it's more and more difficult for any of us to see very fine um, uh, objects uh, in an image. So, for example, to read uh, with sharpness, you have to move the book further and further apart and uh, further and further away from yourself. So what's done, of course, these days is you get glasses, first reading glasses, and now today we have, uh, of course, progressive lenses, which means that with uh, uh, you can see both near and far depending on where you look through the lens of your glasses. So that's uh, something that we all um, uh, encounter and uh, is a rather simple problem to deal with. But of course, well, that's glasses. Diseases. What about LASIK surgery? Is that something that also relieves this 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 kind of a condition well, that we usually get LASIK is done in younger people who are very myopic. That is, uh, most of the uh, focusing, believe it or not, is not done by the lens. It's only the fine end stage focusing that's done by the lens. The great bulk of focusing is done by the. Uh, <clears throat> by the cornea, about 80% of the focusing. And so people who are very nearsighted, then LASIK can be very much of a huge uh, advantage to them. But for nearsighted people, uh, I mean for farsighted people as we age, the eye is always changing and probably LASIK is not as effective as you grow older because it's, your eye, again, is changing all the time, and it means whereas the LASIK may correct you for a period of time, you then would have to go back and, and, and uh, readjust the focusing with reading glasses. But there are a number of uh, age-related uh, eye diseases that can be treated very successfully with surgery. Uh, the most common one is, of course, cataracts. As we get older, the lens tends to become cloudy, and that compromises the image formation on the back of the eye. And today, um, with um, the surger surgical techniques that we have, uh, it's very easy to eliminate cataracts, first by getting rid of the lens that is cloudy. And that's done very simply these days uh, by what we call emulsifying, that is breaking up the lens, and then it can be sucked out with a very fine needle. But not only that, but one can insert into the eye an artificial lens, and so you end up with very much sharper vision, better color vision uh, with uh, the artificial lenses. And they come in various uh, strengths so that one eye can be used primarily for near vision, another one for far vision, and indeed lenses are coming along that even can... Uh, um, go like progressive lenses from near to far. So, you know, you sound, you know, in the, when you're describing some of these, I don't want to interrupt for a second, but it, it sounds not dismal but or depressing, but as we get older and as we age, I guess there are lots of 
things that happen to our eyes uh, that need to be taken care of. I guess my, at what age does all, do all of these sort of, does your, uh, do your eyes start to well, deteriorate? Well, usually it's in the mid-40s that you begin to notice that uh, you can't read print as easily as you could before, especially the phone book. But, of course, we don't use the phone book these days very much. But that's what happens. Reading the newspaper gets more and more difficult and so on and so forth. And that starts in the mid-40s. When cataracts start, uh, usually somewhat later in the 60s uh, and into the 70s, some people never form a cataract, but many, many people do. And so for better, sharper vision, better color vision, having the cataract removed uh, today is a very easy and very successful operation. It only takes something in the order of 20 to 30 minutes to accomplish the, in the, in, in, the incision in the eye is so small that today you don't even need to have stitches to close up the incision and so on and so forth. So, uh, you know, it's an extraordinarily successful uh, a, a procedure with virtually no uh, complications. But there Is are there anything that we can do happen. before our forties? To we've been talking about what you can do once these conditions begin or persist. Um, but is there not what can, really? If, no, as nothing. We get older, the lens gets somewhat stiffer, and uh, that's almost inevitable. So, uh, and then as far as cataracts are concerned, we don't really know that much about how they start. Uh, and what one might do to prevent them. This is, uh, you know, cataracts probably are the leading cause. I think it, I should remove the word probably. That is, cataracts are the leading cause of blindness in the world. And what we mean by blindness is that the resolution of the eye is something like 2200, whereas a normal person, a young person, would have 2020 vision, as we all know. So we've lost a lot of resolving power as we age. But, um, uh, you know, there are other situations that happen as we age, too, that people should know something about. So, for example, probably the leading cause of blindness in the West is now age-related macular degeneration, and in which the very center of the eye, where we have our highest resolving power, in a small area of the eye called the fovea, um, it, that begins to become a problem in many people. Uh, uh, and again, pro- probably today the leading cause of loss of high resolution in the eye, which means that you can't drive, you can't read, you can't recognize faces, and so on and so forth. Uh, and uh, we're working hard on trying to solve uh, age-related macular degeneration. It comes in two forms. The less damaging form is called dry AMD, and most people then, although they lose some resolution, uh, can do reasonably well visually just with dry AMD. But in 15% of the cases, it turns into what is called wet AMD, in which blood vessels grow into the central region of the retina, and they tend to be fragile, they tend to bleed, causing little hemorrhages, and that can destroy then the central vision. 
But fortunately, we have drugs now that can stop the ingrowth of the blood vessels and slow the progression of wet AMD. That's been very successful. So there is progress being made in that area, and uh, many people, myself included, have been interested in trying to find out why even dry AMD occurs. We're not there with a therapy yet, but progress is being made. Well, I would imagine more progress would be made considering the numbers must be increasing as well. I mean, because we live so long. I mean, people are living into their 70s, 80s, and even 90s. So all of these these eye diseases, I would imagine, um, would become, in terms of numbers, there would be in our population, we would find a, a lot more people who are, I use the word suffering from, from these diseases, but um, are we taking care of ourselves? What are we doing in terms, you know, you've mentioned therapies for, for different diseases that we get as we get older, but um, as a society here in the United States, are we doing well? Do we get checkups when we should get our checkups, and how often should one get checkups, say, after you get your 40s, when all this stuff begins starts? Um, I would suggest you start getting yearly checkups even in your 30s. Uh, just to make sure that nothing uh, is going wrong. Fortunately, you can look into the eye and look at the retina of the eye, which is a part of the brain which is pushed out into the eye during development. And uh, it's the only part of the brain that you can really visualize uh, appropriately. And, of course, the ophthalmologist does this whenever you go for a checkup. But another disease that's uh, a very serious one and that, again, as we age, we see more and more cases of it is glaucoma, where there is a loss of the output cell cells of the, of the retina, which means that if we aren't getting that message from the retina to the rest of the brain, we lose vision com- completely. And that tends to start not in the central part of the retina, but in the peripheral part of the retina, and very often people don't notice that. So this is one reason for going to the ophthalmologist to check and see if there is some loss of vision anywhere in the eye. And what we know about glaucoma is that the highest risk factor for it is uh, high intraocular pressure. That means that the eye ball gets harder and harder. And we now have a number of drugs that can keep the eye pressure low in the normal range. So that's something important to check for. And I would suggest even having a yearly visit with the ophthalmologist beginning in your 30s. But uh, also diabetes, which is increasing uh, uh, among our population. Type 2 diabetes. Diabetic retinopathy that forms um, and many people who have diabetes, and that should be checked for, and so on and so forth. So there are really a number of uh, diseases that I would call age-related that can compromise vision. And Do we course, have better also- technologies now in, to detect these age-related uh, diseases? Is the technology getting oh, yes. better and I better? Mean, we, yeah. have, we have quite good technology um, for uh, dealing with a number of these diseases, including, you know, diabetic retinopathy, glaucoma, uh, at least one form of age-related macular degenerative 
degeneration. Cataract surgery is uh, now quite routine in this country, and uh, it's easily done without complications, as we talked about. So it's important then to have your eyes checked. Most people, you know, fear blindness more than almost anything else, even including cancer, believe it or not. Indeed, people who have lost much of their vision say that they will trade years of their life or they would trade years of their life if they could get back uh, good vision again. So it's something, your eyes are very precious, and it's something then you need to be checking all the time. And by that, I mean a checkup once a year uh, is a very good thing to do. I have another question. They talk about, you know, children now today, not just children, but most of us or all of us are using technology. We're on the Internet. We're on our cell phones. Uh, we're looking at our our watches that are our computers. Um, how does that affect our eyes and the health of our eyes and our vision, or does it? Being- I don't think it does as long as you have healthy eyes. Uh, if you have... Um, you know, eyes that aren't healthy for whatever reason, if the focus isn't correct, then you can develop what is called eye strain. Uh, but you would know that. It would mean that after you've been using the computer for a while, your eyes feel very tired and you have trouble reading and so on and so forth. So again, a trip to the ophthalmologist can be very useful in getting what we call refraction to make sure that the image is falling on the back of the eye where the light-sensitive elements are, are in sharp focus. So, again, um, it's important to look after the eyes, but it's important to look after everything, as you well know. But, John, I'm talking, okay, that's a good, I understand that, but adults can sort of monitor whether they, they're on the computer too long and their eyes hurt. But what about young children? And, and you know, kids start, they're on computers at, one and a half, 18 months old, two years old, uh, on iPads, um, and even if it's regulated, they can't tell you that, oh, their eyes are tired or they have a headache. Or So how, as a parent, would you monitor that kind of behavior? Well, I, you know, I, <laughs> that's a very <laughs> difficult question um, because, of course, kids are very different. I mean, when we were growing up, it was reading. Some of us read all the time and one wor- worried were you reading too much or so on and so forth? It, I don't think there's any evidence that um, watching um, you know, a computer or television really hurts the eyes as long as the eyes are in good shape. All right. This is probably maybe our last question. We have a few minutes left. But um, tell us the experience of writing a book with your brother. How was it? How was it? Yeah. Well, and why did you two decide uh, wait, to write it? To, yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm a basic scientist. I've spent my life studying how vision works, particularly how the retina of the eye works. It, the retina, of course, as I mentioned earlier, is part of the brain pushed out into the eye during development. So I've been interested then in the basic science of how we see and how we perceive things and so on and so forth. It was about a decade ago that I was asked to chair um, an initiative that was sponsored by the Lasker Foundation of New York and the International Retinal Research Foundation in Birmingham, Alabama, that was trying to see if we could speed 
the development of therapies for various eye diseases. And so we began a series of studies on the major eye diseases, glaucoma, diabetic retinopathy, people who were blind, what might be done for them, and amblyopia, another disease of children mainly. And uh, uh, we invited both basic scientists and clinicians to participate. And what became clear to me, and you mentioned this right at the beginning, is that the clinicians didn't always know the very latest in our understanding of how we see. At the same time, many of the basic scientists didn't really know much about the major eye diseases. And so bringing those people together was sort of, pun intended, an eye-opener for me. So I thought a book in which we included both information about how we see as well as what we know about the major eye diseases in relation to how we see would be useful. Again, I'm the basic scientist. My brother being an ophthalmologist, I said, let's join forces and do it together. And it was a lot of fun. We enjoyed it. We argued a lot about things. We always didn't agree. But I think it came out quite well. And uh, I think it could be very useful for a lot of people interested in how we see what the major eye diseases are, our present thinking about them, and uh, in many cases, where we're going from here. So, for example, there are lots of efforts today to uh, find ways to deal with people who are completely blind. That is, there are visual prostheses that can be used to mimic, if you will, the retina of the eye as long as the cortical part of how we see is still intact. That's working. There are new other things coming along. In some cases of <clears throat> with regard to uh, inherited retinal diseases, gene therapy is beginning to be useful. Indeed, the first gene therapy for an inherited retinal disease, of a variant of retinitis pigmentosa has just been approved by the FDA and the uh, application of this gene therapy was done here in Boston in November, as best we can tell, with very successful results. And it's also been possible to um, insert molecules into the retina of blind animals to get uh, cells in the retina that no longer are light-sensitive, light-sensitive again. So all of these things are going on, and, uh, uh, you know, we're, we're making great progress. And again, so, as I mentioned, a real success in terms of understanding, you know, what goes wrong has been in, you know, diseases like glaucoma, coming along with diabetic retinopathy, age-related macular degeneration, inherited retinal degeneration, and so on and so forth. Well, I mean, gene therapy sounds exciting. Uh, I was thinking as you're talking, what about uh, cornea transplants and those kinds of things? Is that... Corneal transplants? Yeah. Yes, if the cornea is damaged, of course, uh, that corneal transplantation was one of the first transplantation tissues cornea was to be successfully transplanted. Um, and there are interesting and good reasons for that. That is that... Uh, the eye is what we call immune permissive. That is, you can transplant a cornea and not worry, usually, 
about it being rejected by the body. In most cases, of course, if you introduce foreign tissue into uh, a person, the immune system recognizes it as foreign and rejects it. And that's been a huge problem, although we're making great progress in doing transplantations of uh, very many organs, as you well know, hearts, lungs, livers, and so on and so forth. But in those cases, almost always you have to, patients have to take immunosuppressive drugs, drugs that will depress the immune system and not reject the transplanted um, tissue. In the case of corneal transplantation, that's not needed because, again, the eye is an immunologically permissive tissue. Well, uh, we only have a couple minutes left. So uh, besides, obviously, reading the book, Vision, How It Works and What Can Go Wrong, Johnny Dowling, uh, we've been talking to the author today, what kind of what websites can we go to to get more information about well, the I book? The, yeah, yeah, I don't have my own website, but I do have a website associated with my position here at Harvard. So if you go to Harvard University, to the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, the Department of Molecular and Cellular <laughs> Biology, you'll find me there with a description of what I do and a little bit about uh, the kinds of research that I do and my interest in how the visual system works. Well, we'll be waiting for your next book. Excuse me? I said we're waiting for your next book. Well, the next book has uh, already been published very recently. Yeah, I've taught neuroscience generally to undergraduates here at Harvard for about 50 years. So uh, the book is called Understanding the Brain, From Cells to Behavior to Cognition. And it's just been published by Norton and uh, is available at a very reasonable price from Amazon, as is our book on vision, which I also recommend to people. And in both cases, they're intended for a more general audience. So I use the new book for a freshman seminar that I teach called The Amazing Brain, and uh, it requires from the students only high school knowledge of science. Well, Indeed, that's perfect for us, and we have to class. say goodbye. We have 30 seconds left, but um, certainly a book that all of us can read if it's your, this is a book you presented to your freshman students. But thanks so much for being on the show today. It was, it was great talking to you. It was my pleasure. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. 